Pastors Barrett, if you're new with us, one of the pastors here, jump to Genesis chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's a couple of Bibles around the side. You can some more. Uh, otherwise, go use your smartphone or hopefully you brought a Bible. Um, we're going to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Thank you, team. That was really helpful. Appreciate what you're doing, Patrick. Thank you. Um, how's everybody doing? Oh, Mel and Bella now. Peaceful? Yes. That was Amen. Nice. That was Thanks, Pete. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. We have been in a little series on relationships and looking at what God intended us, how God intended us to live in the first place. The last three weeks, Bill, another pastor, has been teaching Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We looked at the image uh, that we, we were created and uh, how we were meant for mutuality. We were meant to use power for empowerment. We were meant for, built, to build for intimacy. And then we looked at Genesis 2, at the, the five dimensions of the soul, that we are, in fact, we don't have a soul, but that we are a soul. Now we are primarily physical and spiritual, and out of that we have emotional, social, and um, intellectual capacities. So we've looked at what does it mean to live out of this image bearing, this uh, this life from Genesis one two that God intended us to be, or intended us to live in, in the first place. And then we saw last week Genesis three, Genesis three where where Adam and Eve uh, eat from the tree of knowledge, and in uh, the perfect world, sin enters into the world and it's marked with shame, hiding, and fear. But we get from Genesis 2 this fascinating one-liner. The author of Genesis could have used a number of words to describe what happens when two people, man and woman, come together in marriage and become one. The word he uses is akkad. Say it with me, akkad. Akkad. You guys got an extra hour and two hours later. Ekad. This is a really important word. Because of all the words the author could have used, he could have used a couple of other words to describe the oneness that marriage brings. But he uses ekad. Ekad is the most popular, it's found in the most popular verse to the Jewish person. Deuteronomy 6.4. Every single Jewish boy and girl, when they would wake up, they would say the Shema prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. The Shema prayer would be said. would be said when they woke up, when they would go to sleep, when they would eat a meal together, when they would enter a Sabbath rest, when the sun would go down on Friday. They would say the Shema prayer. The Shema was a commitment, an allegiance, a declaration to all the world that there is one God, and that He is one. The word Echad means a oneness made up of several parts. It, it stresses that there's a diversity within the unity. And it's used throughout the entire Old Testament to describe a unique characteristic of the Creator God, known as Yahweh. The God who is in Himself a diversity in the midst of unity. That He is in fact one but somehow has many several parts and members. And we understand this to be the Trinity, right? 
Uh, some of you have heard that word if you're new to the church. It's a word that describes the Christian God that we worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. Now, why would the author of Genesis use that word to describe the uniqueness of what happens when a man and woman come together in marriage? Because the point I want to make this morning is something we're going to work towards in the back. We're going to start here and go back to it. But marriage never exists for itself. What I want to make today is that marriage is designed from Genesis chapter 2 to display, to be used as a prop, to represent or show, uh, it's a picture of what God is like. That God, in fact, is three in one. God is, in fact, Echad. He's a oneness made of several parts. And when two people come together in marriage, their marriage is designed to reveal to a fractured world the oneness of God. And that is the purpose of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. But if you're like me, you recognize that most marriages don't display this type of oneness. Most marriages don't have this sense of celebration of diversity come together under unity. Most marriages don't necessarily reveal this Trinitarian God. In fact, they reveal our choice, our, our liberal perspective of, of allowing our, our feelings and emotions to rule the relationship. Most of our relationships reflect the Genesis 3, something marked with shame, with, with hiding, with fear, with sin. Doesn't reflect the Genesis one two in reality. Uh, one two reality, and if you look at culture, we we have a culture that celebrates the. Divorce. How many of you guys read the, the the articles? It's hard to miss. Seventy two days, Kim Kardashian was married before she filed for divorce. It took seventy two days for her getting paid millions of dollars to show her wedding. She divorces. She files for divorce from her husband. And when asked by a reporter, why did you work hard at it? Her response was this, I think when you know so deep in your heart, you just have to listen to your intuition and follow your heart. There's no right or wrong thing to do. Marriage in our culture is revealed as something that you can just toss away, file some papers and let it be, because it didn't actually work out. Marriage is something that you can go back and forth on. Some of us have the reflection of broken marriages in our lives. Some of us are children to what broken marriages do. Uh, and, and then yet, in our culture, again, there's a sense of, of love as this ambiguous, intuitive thing that we can find, that we can search after, that we can fall in and out of. But the gospel reveals something far more greater than that type of love. And as Christians, People that, that have kind of the essence of life, that know where we've come from and where we're going. Christians that, that have a, a perspective of who God is and his name, that he's not this distant God, he's not this absentee landlord, but God in fact has revealed himself throughout history. He's given us his son to reveal his love. We of all people should, one, be great at relationship. Two, we should know how to be good at love because that's a command from Jesus. Right? By this, the world will know. Yet we look in our churches and we have the same type of relationships. So the question I want to answer today, in view of the last three weeks, knowing where Genesis 1-2, where we've come from Genesis 1-2, and looking at Genesis 3, the question is how, in the midst of the effects of Genesis 3, do we live in the Genesis 1-2 reality? 
How do we live in a marriage life at God? How do we live in this oneness? With it? Yeah, I need some interaction. Yeah, I do. Right, I'm tired. I'm working at double today. So, uh, are you with me? Yes. All right, go to Ephesians chapter 5. To answer this question, we're going to root uh, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is written by a guy named Paul to a church in Ephesus. Um, and we, we, we read this, uh, Paul is writing to the, the, the church, which is found in Ephesus in Asia Minor. And he's writing uh, this letter to talk about what it means for the church to be a church. And uh, so we get to chapter 5. Now, Paul in chapter 5 is talking to the church. He's talking to everyone that says yes to Jesus. Everyone that will say that they're a follower of Christ. They've said yes to the prayer. Uh, they're, they're, they're committed to him. They're part of a local church. He gives them an expectation of what it looks like to be part of the body. What does it look like to be a disciple? What does it look like for the church to mature and become the kinds of people that represent Christ on earth? This is the purpose of chapter 5 and 6. Uh, chapter 5 and 6. Forgive me. But we pick up in verse 18, and he's talking to the whole church. And I want to read 18 to the end of the chapter, and we'll go back and look at it. It says this, um, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing of water in the world, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without staining or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives and bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them, just as Christ does in church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul begins in chapter 5, in this passage, 18, with a commandment to the churches. He says, don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with Spirit. And the phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is better translated in, in, in English as be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you can just do once and for all, but in life with God, it's something that we're constantly continuing to do. It's like we're being like a balloon being blown up. It's constantly being filled more and more and more. It's not like a cup. You can fill it to the, to the top and it's done. It's like a balloon being filled. And so the, the picture is, hey church, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what he does next is give you gives us five results of what happens to a church that is full of the Spirit. So the next few parts is Paul's description of what happens when, when we as the body of Christ 
are filled with the Holy Spirit. There are five different results. Can we count them together? Verse 18 uh, says, instead be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, number one, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Number two, this is the result of being filled. Sing. Number three, make music from your heart to the Lord. Number four, always give thanks to God the Father for everything. And in the, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Now, where's the fifth one? It, it continues on, right? So when Paul's writing to us saying, this is what happens when you feel the Holy Spirit. You speak to one another psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. This is what the church should do to each other. Okay? We, we, we make music. We sing songs. We give thanks to the Lord for everything. And what's the fifth result of what happens when we feel? We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When the church is full of the Spirit, it submits to each other out of reverence for Christ. Now the word submit, is it occurs only a few times throughout the New Testament. And the Bible actually, uh, in this particular passage, it uses two words in Greek to form one kind of concept. And the word is to under and to place in order. And, and, and really, the definition is, is to place yourself under, to give allegiance to, to tend to the needs of, an, of another. Or as I would like to translate it, it says, to submit is to place your well-being under the well-being of another. And to submit is to voluntary, voluntarily bring yourself into supportive alignment with another. This is a military word. It's used to describe what happens when one soldier submits himself under another commanding officer's leadership. Now, if Paul wanted to use language to describe what happens when someone that's inferior submits to someone superior, he would use a different word than what he uses. But instead, the word one another has to do with two equals mutually submitting. Mutually, can you put that back up real quick, Lisa? Mutually placing the well-being of themselves under the well-being of another. That's what it means for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That everyone in the church, when we do community groups, when we gather on Sunday, when we're in Christian community, we sing songs, we talk, we give, we, we speak hymns to each other, we make music, we give thanks. We learn to lay down our lives for the people around us, out of our relationship with Jesus. What does that sound like? Does that sound an awful like John 13? Love one another as I've loved you. Sound an awful like awful like a lot like what Jesus does as he demonstrates the gospel. All he's doing is saying, hey, live like I've invited you to live. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the result is this. Amen. That every single, I need to make this so clear. That every person that says yes to Jesus, this is what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. We learn to lay down our lives our demands, our preferences, our ways of life, our dreams, our goals for the sake of others. Are you there? Yes. So you can say it this way. The predominant posture for every disciple to every other disciple is to place the well-being of yourself under the well-being of another. And then it goes on and it talks about relationship. But before we do that, I'm going to give you seven minutes. For those of you that are new to the garden, we believe that when we read this thing called the Bible, that there are many authors, there are many recipients, that it was written to a specific group of people by a specific author during a specific time for a specific purpose in a particular context that we want to learn about and know about. And that, all of that helps us transform and understand what the scripture is. Are you with me? So here we are. I want to do a brief contextual illustration of what life was like in Ephesus. 
order for us to understand this, this passage of what it means for us to have marriages that we left to a God who's one, we have to understand the context of what, of what Ephesus was written to. Um, so let's begin with Artemis, and we'll, we'll begin with two things. We'll, we'll look at Ephesus and then the Roman culture. Okay, so take notes if you want. This is some fascinating history. I hope you're fascinated by it, but we'll make the point in just a second. First of all, Ephesus was founded by a mythological, they believe, the Ephesians people believe that they were founded by a mythological tribal women of warriors known as the Amazon. So the Ephesian people believe that they were, they were descendants of the Amazons, and these warrior women um, were, were dominant, to say the least. They would uh, get pregnant and kill their spouses, like black widows in the Greek mythology. They would cut off one breast and um, to be better at shooting the bow and arrow, hunt. Um, this is the type of people that they've come from. Real quick, I need to say this. If you have little ones here, there's going to be some PG-13 parts in this discussion. So if you don't want to be explaining certain things in the future to them after the sermon, you might want to take them outside. Forgive me. I meant to say that earlier. But that's kind of the discretion. Otherwise, do what you want to do. Um, it's not me that's talking to them. So you have this Ephesian culture that they believe they came from the Amazons. Also, Ephesus is the place, the epicenter, for the worship of a god named Artemis. This is Artemis. Look at Artemis. Artemis is beautiful. Um, isn't she? Artemis was the goddess of uh, virginity and reproduction. She was the protector of small animals and of the hunt. So she, it was just this weird paradox, virginity and reproduction, small animals and hunter. Um, she was worshipped all throughout Asia, and the worship of Artemis was crazy. It, she had a temple that was sat on 70,000 acres that was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Right? This is a, a, a makeup picture that they believed it would be. I mean, it's on 70,000 acres. Uh, to worship, to think of Ephesus was to think of the god Artemis. Artemis was Lord, Savior, and God. If you had a child, it was because Artemis made it happen. If your business was successful, it was because Artemis made it happen. Everyone in Ephesus was known for worshiping Artemis. And how did you worship Artemis? Well, glad you asked. Artemis... The only way to fully interact and worship Artemis was the temple prostitution. That women priestesses saw that it was their duty to initiate temple prostitution in order to fully engage in encounter with the god Artemis. In fact, during the month of, uh, the month of March and April, our, our month, there was a there was a, a festival called the Artemisia. Over a million people from around the world would come to Ephesus, uh, where that housed only about 200,000 people. A million people would come, and they would partake in this festival every single year, where they would try to in, in have do what you do with prostitutes as much as possible, because that was seen as worship artists. If you could not be a priest in the, the cult of artists, you could only be a priestess, uh, a woman you could only be a priestess. But if you did want to become a priest, if you wanted to serve Artemis as a man, at that yearly festival, forbidden for me graphic, the men would have to castrate themselves and throw their stuff on the temple god herself once a year. This is the type of religious culture that Ephesus had. It was rampant with female-dominant illustration. Women were, the, uh, were, were absolutely promiscuous. The idea 
of, of, of worship was, was mixed with, with sexual intercourse with women prostitutes. I mean, this is the type of culture that Paul is writing to when the church in Ephesus starts to explode. Now you can get why in Acts 19 there's an uproar in the city of Ephesus. Because they remember that the, the, the guys that made um, statues of Artemis were getting all mad because people were, were burning their paraphernalia. If you, have you read Acts? Do you remember this part of the scripture? I mean, it's just absolutely crazy to think about the Ephesus religion. So, one point that we've got to look at is that um, in Ephesus, um, religious culture was female dominant. It was ruled by women. They were the ones that were, were intellectually uh, higher than men. They had power over men because of sexuality. I could go on and on. It's so fascinating to me, that whole cult of artists. It really plays into First Timothy, and that's a whole other story about women not teaching men and uh, not being elders and stuff. That's a whole other story. I can talk about that later. But let's talk about Roman culture. Now, religion uh, had female-dominated, had a female-dominated culture. Politics had a patriarchal male-dominated culture. Written into Roman law was this fancy title that the men were the head of the house and they had the power of life and death over their home. If you were a man in the first century, you were only responsible for providing your wife a house and the opportunity to bear children. You, you didn't have to do anything else. Um, you, you, were also, you also had the capacity to kill your slave, disown your slave, to kill your children, and disown your children, and leave your children, to disown and kill your wife, depending on the situation. You had the power of life and death over your household. It was a male-dominated society. Here's a couple of uh, thoughts. In, um, a guy named Apollodorus is a writer. He said this about um, the, in Athens, and this has to do with Greek culture, and it's true to the Ephesian church, uh, the, or it was true to Ephesus. It said, he said, we have prostitutes for pleasure, slaves for daily service of our bodies, and wives for the production of legitimate offspring. This was the, this was the antithesis what it was like to be in Rome for a century. To sleep with prostitutes, the idea of being faithful to your wife was so foreign to the city of Athens. But no, we worship Artemis. Prostitution was as normal as driving a car in Southern California. It was just what you do, right? Another writer, uh, you, gotta, you might have heard of Aristotle. I don't have it written up, but Aristotle once wrote this, and I think he got it wrong. We talked about in utero, if, if a baby went to full term without any problems, it would become a man. If there was any problems for, uh, that happened in, in the development of the baby, they would become female. The Roman thought was that women were undeveloped half men. Now just imagine that type of culture, guys, what that would do to a church being born in you have a female-dominant religious culture and a male-dominant political culture that made its way into the household. And the idea of being faithful to your wife is so far from anything ever experienced or developed within the first century church. And then we go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I want to read this, and I want to ask some questions, because I believe that this text is the answer to our question. How do we have the type of relationship that reveal the Genesis 1 to the How do we develop the type of intimacy that is seen as a copy? And 
think Paul has a revolutionary reasoning, and it begins at verse 21. But I need to interpret this for you. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Go to that text about um, Ephesians. Okay, how many of you have a Bible that has, a, I need some participation, that has a chapter break between verse 20 and 21? Keep your hand up. All the way up, all the way up. Keep them up. I just want to see. So how many of you have a chapter break between verse 20 and 21? Okay, put your hands up. How many of you have a chapter break between verse 21 and 22? Okay. Do you find this interesting that this has been one of the most misinterpreted texts in our scripture? It's been used to oppress women. Now, when Paul writes this, remember the previous passages, what happens to a church when they're filled with the Holy Spirit? These things are the result of that. And the fifth one was they begin to submit to one another. Everyone submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the continuation. We have a chapter break, a period, and a new thought. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. But how many of you know this? That in the Greek manuscript, the original Greek manuscript, it doesn't say wives submit. It's not in the text. It's in our Bibles. The original Greek reads this way. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Your Bible has interpreted a text for you. What is, the, what is the difference between the two? Well, Paul doesn't say wives submit to your husbands. Paul says wives to your husbands. Wives, do what you're already doing to everyone else. There's nothing new here. It, one way to say it is with that other translation, the predominant posture of every disciple to every other disciple is to place the well-being of yourself under the well-being of others. Wives, do this to your husbands. That doesn't seem very revolutionary, does it? That's what everyone else is doing. Does that seem revolutionary to the first century when, when women were already dominated over by male men in the household? No. They're already submitted. The revolution comes in verse 25, which, which it begins this. So let's let's move forward. Um, are you following me on the train of thought? Wives are not commanded to do anything different than they're already doing. They're supposed to do this for their husbands as they're already doing it for everyone else in the church. But then he goes on and think about a male-dominant society that says you are the you are the authority that has the authority of life and death in your house. That the idea of sleeping around is no big deal. It's just part of the culture. This is what we do. This is just normal. This is worship. And then Paul writes to that context, to women coming out of that cult, to men coming out of that culture. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see how progressive this thought is? That in that culture, they didn't owe their wives date nights, love languages. They didn't owe the dishes. They owe their roof and a chance to bear children. And Paul's response to the crisis that Genesis 3 brings to marriage is, Husbands, be like Jesus for your wife. Just got really quiet. Did you hear that? Love like Jesus. You want the answer 
to how to how to help your marriage? Well, I know there's a power struggle and a cycle. Well, you know, if you submit, then then I'll serve you, or then I'll love you, or if you respect me, then I'll love you. And men, we play this game, this cycle. And she says, well, if you if you love me, then I'll serve and submit to you. But Paul says, enough of that. Husbands, love like Jesus. How did Jesus love? He washes the, her feet. The church. He. He, he, uh, he, he extends grace to the people that don't need grace. He invites people to eat dinner with him that should never be eating at a table with the Messiah. He, he forgives someone that denies him in the most important point in his life three times. And he says, I restore you to who you were. He dies for the church. Brothers and sisters, have brothers. If you haven't died for your wife yet, would you agree that we have a lot to learn? We have room to grow. I'm convinced that the text we need to focus on is the men learning to love, not an emotional love followed by intuition. No, imagine if Jesus loved the church that way. Oh, I feel like I'm going to love you today. I have warm fuzzies this morning, so I'm going to serve you. <laughs> That's a Greek term to say that. <laughs> It's not going to lie. Um, no, Jesus made a choice to love. And out of that choice, out of the act of choosing to love, his, his action towards us was all he could do because of his character. All he could do is act out of a choice to love, to die. That's what he chose to do. Not because he felt like it. How many of us think that dying feels good? It probably hurts like hell. And to be just real honest, I'm so tired of hearing boys complain about trying to be a man. That may sound hard, and I, I, I'm the same way, and I'll talk about myself in a second, because I don't claim to have this down. But what I do know is Paul gives us a framework to work through, and it starts with the men modeling for our wives Christ's love for the church. That gives you plenty of illustrations. Just read the different gospel accounts. Why? Why in the text does Jesus do this? Why does he love the church? Why does he die for the church? Do you ever think about that? Why? So that he can present the church in all of her splendor. To sanctify her. To set us apart for a sacred purpose. To make us holy. To reveal her beauty. Ladies, imagine what it would be like for you to submit to a man that devoted his entire life to laying down his preferences, his agenda, his dreams, to devote himself to the complete flourishing of your full soul, your spiritual, physical, emotional, social, and mental capacity. What if he devoted himself, his life, to your you? What would that do for your relationship? What would that do for your security, for your comfort, for your ability to say, yes, I surrender? Because this is Paul's logic. The only kind of person that it's safe to submit to is the kind of person that uses power to empower. Paul's logic here is the only safe person that is fully submit to is the kind of person that uses power to empower. Not to control and manipulate and get your answer and get for a guy to come and get the way, what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it. Guys, I want to say this if you're married. This applies to the bedroom. 
that we are called first to serve. Forgive me for preaching, but I need to preach this. This applies to every dimension of our soul. Are we expecting our demands, or demanding our needs to be met, or are we laying down lives for our spouses? The reason we do this is to perfect our wives, present her and her glory. It goes on. Man, the tension so dense. <laughs> I wish I had a funny joke for you guys. goes on and he says in verse 28, in the same way husbands have to love uh, the wives of their bodies. He's, he's appealing to the self-interest of the first century man, which is a lot like the first century, 21st century man, huh? You know, it's like you're loving yourself anyway, so this is our turn. But the reason he could say that is because it goes back to Genesis 2. The mysterious thing about this whole thing called marriage, the mysterious nature of marriage is found in this oneness reality that our marriage is not designed for itself. I want to say this and I want to be careful. Your marriage is not designed to make you happy or to meet all of your needs. It's designed to reflect Christ's love to the world. It's designed to reflect the oneness of God to a fractured world that desperately needs to know now more than ever sacredness and so that's the argument. The reason we do this is so that the world will know that there is a God who is one, that the world will know that there is Jesus who loves, that your marriage is, is put as a picture, as an Eastern Orthodox icon to reveal a sacred grace. Sorry if that, maybe that was too much. Uh, and then verse 33, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the revolutionary. When Paul reverses the effects of sin, of shame, of, of blame, of hiding, of fear. And he, he, he enters, he allows us to enter into this world that has been marked by Genesis 3 from a whole new perspective. If we want to have a healthy marriage life, we have to experience death. If we want to experience a healthy marriage life, then we have to die to ourselves. Only when we die do we experience the resurrection life in our marriage. You see that. You see logic. That we're modeling the love of Christ, which inevitably falls to death. And in that death, we have the life of resurrection. If Jesus is the model, then Paul says, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. If Jesus is the model, then men, if you think your wife's not lovable, well, you should still love her anyways, because that's what Jesus did. Your love will make her lovable. If you don't think she's worthy, your love will make her worthy. Do you see that's what Jesus did for us? It's not because we deserved it. It's because we are still sinners. And in his coming down and revealing his love and dying on the cross, we now have a picture of what worth we have, that he's, he died for how valuable we are. Husbands die for how valuable your wife is. Not what you think she is, but what Jesus has done. Women, wives, you don't say, hey, my, my husband's just not respectable. How do you respect the man that Jesus sees for? Do you see that? Otherwise, it's a cycle of power struggles. I'm convinced that it takes the man to 
the beginning to end the cycle of divorce and the corruption of power. We use our power to lay down with our spouses. Period. If there's enough food for three in your family of four, who doesn't eat first? The husband. That's what it means to be the head of the house. That's what it means to model the love of Christ. If you're waiting for your wife to submit, you've already failed to meet. It starts with surrender. It starts with you laying down your plans and your wants. You die with your need for control to do whatever it takes to serve her. You die so that she can live. Boyfriends, this is for you too. Do you think that your character will change when you get married? For those of you in dating relationships or engaged, do you think that your character is going to change once you put a ring on her finger and yours? You will be married to the person that you, uh, however you dated, you will be married to that person. So you'll be married to her however you dated her. Ladies, if you're single, ask these questions. Does he serve you? Does he place his well-being under your well-being? Is he a threat to your purity or is he a protector of it? There is no excuse, guys, for there's no excuse for that. You say that. There's no excuse. Model the love of Christ in your dating relationships. Does he, does he demand his needs to be met? Or yours? <laughs> okay, that was good. Um, I would love to end it, but I need to just process this. Some of the best ways to preach is to show where someone is. And so for me, how do I do this? Well, for me, I'll say, babe, I'll love you if you respect me first. That's my answer. I'll love you like Jesus if you can just submit to me. Submit to me. Um, I don't have this figured out. I want to just say I'm an idiot. I want to read some of the things I said in all humorous seriousness. Uh, I've said this to my wife. And so I'll just be vulnerable. You have to submit in order for me to leave. I just can't lead someone like you. I wish you were more like so-and-so who does this for their husband. If you just respect me, then I can finally love you. I think there's something wrong with you. You might want to go see the doctor. The dominant posture of my heart is what can I get? to reveal the sacredness and oneness of marriage it's during a season of moving where do you think that when we decided we were going to move that I uh, I listened with my wife's concern I, I came to humbly said how do you want to move our house or did I have the perfect way and the most effective way and the most efficient way to move our house from one to the other with boxes a certain direction with packing in a certain order or did I lay it down and say babe how can I make this easier on you how can I serve you in this process because I know you need a stable place to live how can we make this happen even if you want to move you know box everything up a month out which is crazy to me 
without telling her everything, she, what's wrong about it, did, did I say, okay, let's do this? Let's start with where you're at. No, I didn't do that. When she was emotional, because our house, the last three years that we lived in this place, was the longest she lived in a place in her entire life since she was born. And she was getting emotional about it. Was I sensitive and caring and listening and saying, what's all this coming from? Can we talk about this cups of coffee and talk through your emotions? Or was I trying to convince her how idiotic it was that she would cry over something like this? Was I telling her that she's wrong for thinking this? Our next place is going to be better. What was I doing? Was I serving? No, I wasn't serving. I wasn't laying down my life. Not when it's e not when it's easy and noticeable. Like I'll get up early and serve you. No, it's in the moment where I don't agree with her that I say, "Babe, I want to come under you." In the first year of my marriage, when I was learning how to be a spiritual leader in the in, as the head of the house, which is terrible language, by the way, did I say, "Hey, Al"? How do you connect with Jesus? How do you, how do you connect with our Creator? How do you connect with God? Do you, do you like to go on walks? Do you read? Do you pray? Or did I come dominant with the perspective, perspective of spirituality as the only way to connect with God is the way that I connect with God, which is reading the Bible all the way through and doing Greek studies and praying a ton and fasting and blah, 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 blah. Or did I say, I'm going to trust you with spirituality? sit and have great spiritual conversations because that's how you've connected with God in the past. Did I do that? No, I didn't. Because you can know, obviously I'm losing it. I don't get this at all, but I want it. I mean, it's so funny. It's the funny one too. Uh, I was, we got a TV now, and I was so proud. I got like a super great deal on Craigslist. It's like a full full turning TV mount, so if I ever wanted to sit on the wall, I can look at the TV right here. I mean, it was perfect, although I did mount it way too high. If we had um, giants in our house, it was like this tall, and it didn't turn enough, and so I text my wife, look, I know it's not going to be perfect, but it's great. I get a phone call from her. I hate it. It's too tall. We need to bring it down. It's too. It comes out from the wall too much. I wish you would have asked. Was my response, yes, babe. Let me lower that for you. Go back on Craigslist and buy a small one for you. Or was it, why don't you affirm me enough? You never, you, you never say anything good I do. I'm not good enough for you. I, I'm just that and this. Well, you're this, that, and this. This control, blah, 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 blah. What is that? Genesis 3. I was ashamed. Rather than just saying, yeah, it's, this has nothing to do with me. I'll lower it. I made it about what I was feeling. I made it about what I was hiding from. I didn't want to be wrong. down your life isn't this giant ordeal that we have to go get the buckets of water and wash our wife's feet. That's symbolic, but it comes in like mounting a TV. Do you have her interest? The thing is, the reason I share this with you is because I'm a pastor and most people think pastors are more spiritual. They're not. I'm not. And I don't get it. I was... The reason I was interested in treating my, my wife well this week was because I knew I had to teach on this. <laughs> and I know all of you would do the same thing. <laughs> I don't get it. I'm not that great at it, but I want it. I want it 
so bad. I want my wife to know how much Jesus loves her because of how I love her. I really want that for her. I want her to know how great God's love is for her by the way I serve and honor and love my wife. I'm going to blow it a million more times. I know it, but I want it. I want it for our divorce-happy culture to know that my wife and I have disagreements. We fight, we argue, we're disappointed, but we're committed to loving each other, to having the kind of marriage that reveals oneness, that reveals God to the world. That's what I want for this culture. I can stand on a stage and preach to crowds, or I can live a life with my wife that reveals God's Trinitarian nature. And every, every day, Tell me, marriage is designed for the good of God's greatness. I feel like I'm really weak. There isn't one marriage here that hasn't or doesn't have a built up pain and disappointment. There's not one marriage that has, has not been built up in this is where we live. And the invitation in this text is that we can, we can live with the life of the kingdom of God here and now. Regardless of how yesterday was or last year or what we did, now we can live with the love of Christ. And if you're here, you say that I don't get it. I don't think I can do it. You don't know my spouse. You don't know how hard it is. I say, yes, I agree with you. It's hell to die to yourself. But you can't do it on your own. This is why it comes at the beginning of Ephesians 5.18, doesn't it? In order for this to happen, what do we have to do first? Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, period. If we want to have the type of marriage that reflects Jesus, we have to love Jesus in a way that we're constantly filled with his presence. Only when we do that will we have somewhat of the capacity to learn to love our spouses like Jesus intended us to do in the first place. There's no way you're going to do it on your own. Disciplines and books, it doesn't matter. Only when you invite Jesus into your life, you're constantly filled with the Holy Spirit, will you begin to model the love of Jesus in your life as the love of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. This isn't about being into all that. It's about intentionally living like Jesus. Right? To love in a way that's genuine, that gives away power, that's about a person. Love in a way that you know can be rejected and abandoned and not accepted and not appreciated. To love in a way that you let go of control and manipulation. To love in a way that, that makes somebody worthy. To love in a way that gives someone strength. To love in a way that makes someone beautiful. To love because there's no good reason because love just simply is. This is the love that we want. It's the purpose of marriage. Final, to, to close, just three thoughts. Paul says this, first of all, everyone in the church is called for mutual submit. To place the well-being of yourself under the well-being of others. Period. Wives, do this to your husbands. Don't wait to respect him until you respect him. Model what Christ taught. Love your husbands. Husbands, this is the time to really stand for our generation, and I speak this universally, I would love for our generation to break the curse of divorce. We can start here. 53% of our, our marriages in the city are single moms. Our babies are single moms. 
that's the family dynamics we have in the city. How do we have, have marriages that are so missional, like just the way we love each other? Husbands, would you love like Jesus, please? Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have a clever way to end it, other than to say the model is, if you ever doubt how to treat your spouse, go to the Gospels. Look how Jesus treated us and followed. I don't want to hear any more excuses. Wait. Let me do this. I have all the men stand up. Please, all the men. You could be married. You could be dating. You could be not interested in dating. It's fine. It doesn't matter. But I want to challenge the men. Men, would you uh, would you listen to these words? Would you? Consider what was spoken to But there's no excuse for us. You can be two weeks married, you can be 36 years married, 48 years. We still have room to grow. We're treating our spouses, our partners, in a way that we know Christ. So if you're married and if you're not, you know, I'm just going to speak this over to all men, whether you're dating or married or not. But husbands, this is from the message. Listen to this. Go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not by getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words, every word, evokes her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant that is how husbands ought to love their wives. Take that and live that out. Thank you. We're going to have to come up. Thanks for being with us this morning. I want to do this. Um, I realize as we talk about marriage, uh, I want to focus on marriage, that we, we come in, those of us that are married, with lists of disappointment. Wishing that they were just like this, or that they could do this differently, or that whatever it is, maybe there's something that comes in the past. And maybe it's not even there, but I think that to begin to live out this type of love, this love to seek the And maybe some of us just need to forgive ourselves for not being what we thought we would be, forgive our spouses for doing something. But we've got to begin with forgiveness. And I really sense that, that there needs to just be a release of Maybe you've tried to be this type of man before and you just you can't do it and you struggle. But maybe for you, it's simply to let go and invite the Holy Spirit to show you how to be the man for your particular life because it's not universal. Any book that says it's this way, it must be to see, it's not true. We all have different personalities and different relationships and all of that stuff. You need to have an attentive, attentive, intentional relationship with the Holy Spirit to teach you how to be the man. And so can we can we do this? Um, I'm gonna have everyone stand. Forgive me, friends. Let's stand. I, I have here in the front two uh, tables. There's one in the back. But this morning we're gonna come together and take communion. Communion represents what? Sacrifice. It represents new covenant. It represents the forgiveness. Would you now?
in groups with your spouse, would you take communion? There's no clear way of making this easy. Would you just crowd the tables, grab the elements, spend some time in prayer, forgive who you need to forgive, ask for forgiveness, and let the Holy Spirit, and we'll close with one person's All right? All right, let's see that. Come forward and we'll grab some communion.